you so much for singing one of my favorite songs there. All of them are my favorite. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. By now, your Bible should be falling open pretty easily there. And as you get situated, I just want to thank you again for the privilege you've given me to be part of the conference this year. Look forward to another time in the will of the Lord, if it's his if it's his plans for the future. I have one more little advertisement to make, if you don't mind. Nancy said, we never tell anybody about your book. So <clears throat> a number of years ago, I wrote a little book from some ministry entitled, He Touched Me, Seven Different People the Lord Reached Out and Touched. We talked about the cleansing of the leper earlier today. He's one of them. But all seven different and all seven we can relate to. So this book is available, printed, published by Gospel Folio, Gospel Folio Press. I have about maybe 10 copies on the back table there, right beside the sign-up sheets for manna in the morning and feed my sheep. If you're interested, please take one. If you'd like to leave approximate gift for it, they're available easily for $10 a piece. But if you say, I don't have $10 but I'd like to have a book. We want you to take it. So please don't hesitate to pick up a copy, but use it and uh, share it around, not share the book, but share the messages from these seven times when the Lord reached out and touched someone like he touched you and like he touched me. In the gospel of John chapter 12, we continue our study in the lessons learned around the table. And I'll read those first 11 verses and the first few words of verse 12. So John 12, verse 1 says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. This he said. Not that he cared for the poor. But because he was a thief. And had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said. Let her alone. She has kept this. For the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me you do not have always. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude, and I pause there, And we trust that God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we thank you for the blessings of the day, of the fellowship we've enjoyed together, and of all the good things you have provided. Above all, we thank you for you, Lord Jesus, 
for your wonderful word and for the things that we've been able to share together. In our study time, we ask, Lord, that at this conference time, we've been conferring with you in our hearts and that you've been pointing out areas in our lives where change is necessary in order to be more conformed to the image of your beloved Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I wish everyone had a bottle of water. As we've been looking in the lessons learned around the table, we've come to Lazarus who taught us and reminded us about fellowship. We've been enjoying some good fellowship today. And then, of course, Simon the leper of his hospitality. How unique that a leper would be used to have people into his home and close to him. And then the two sisters, Martha and Mary, all about service and worship. And the two go hand in hand together. Now we have three more lessons ahead of us. We're going to look at Judas. And this is a good time when you want to hiss in our culture, Brother David. In our culture, hiss if you can whenever you mention the name like Haman or Judas or Benedict Arnold or whoever it may be. Betrayers, as we'll look at him in just a moment. He's going to teach us. We can learn from anybody and everybody. He's going to teach us a lesson. We'll also look at the Lord Jesus Christ and take the lesson that he teaches. And then lastly, these groups of people that we put all together in the end. So we have three more lessons. And the first of these three is indeed from Judas Iscariot, verses 4 through 6. What will he teach us? Consider in verse 4, it tells us, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. So we see Judas, the betrayer. We just consider the source and we wonder, will we even listen to what he has to say? But even someone like Judas, as we said, you can learn something from anyone, even if it's what not to do. Every once in a while, I'm around Christians, and they try to show them a little bit of uh, compassion or or understanding or at least give them a little slack. And I say, don't give them any slack. (laughs) He, He has more reason not to do what he did than anyone else of all the followers of the Lord. But he was an imposter. Make no mistake about it. He was not saved, and he was a betrayer. In fact... He was the epitome of treachery. He betrayed the Savior with a kiss. How close can you come to the Lord and turn away lost? You can come close enough to kiss him, like Judas did, and go into darkness. Judas, the betrayer, in verse 4. In verse 5, we see Judas and his boldness. Think This is the very first recorded words of Judas in the Bible. Now, in the other Gospels, like Matthew and Mark, you might find a little different phrase, succinct. He says, why this waste? And John expands it a little bit. He says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So why this waste? His first recorded words. You know what his last recorded words were? I have betrayed 
innocent blood. And between these two statements, we see a life that could have been different, but was not by choice. And so Judas, in his boldness, in making this statement, he influenced others. In fact, right alongside in the other Gospels of what Judas said when he said, why this waste? The other disciples joined in on the chorus and they all were indignant. You see, what happens is a critical spirit is very contagious. If you don't mind, we move from the actual interpretation to an application. Now, we may not be betrayers. We may be saved, children of God, blood-bought. But you know, we can have a critical spirit sometimes, and it does have an influence of, on everyone around us. And so Judas, we go back to him and we say, he influenced the other disciples because though he was a betrayer and bold at that, his impact was complete. Yet, notice what he does teach us. There in verse 6, he puts a price tag on the spikenard. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? <clears throat> well, uh, 300 denarii, you've heard it explained almost any time anybody ever mentions about the worship that Mary offered and the price, a year's wages for a common laborer. That's quite a price put on it. So what is it worth? And that's the question. And if we were going to say the lesson we learn, even from Judas, is what he is worth to us. To Judas, he saw the Lord Jesus as being worth 300 denarii. And you see that Judas had something else going in place. In verse 6, it mentions specifically that he did not care for the poor. So we see him as Judas and the box. He was a hypocrite, a liar. He lived a part that was a lie. And living a lie is probably the greatest lie you could ever propagate on people around you. What was it? Well, <clears throat> his manner was he was a convincing liar, wasn't he? He was of his father, the devil. And also, he was a thief. Think about his manner for a moment. He was so deceptive, but we're not surprised by that, because even the devil himself disguises himself as an angel of light, and his emissaries or his servants and workers they also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. So we're looking at a band of righteous followers of the Lord Jesus. And right in there is Judas. And he's playing the part. And he's playing it out well. So much so that he convinced all the other disciples. Do you know that <clears throat> he was so convincing that when the Lord, in John chapter 13, said to Judas... That which thou doest, do quickly. And he went out that the other disciples thought that he was going out to do what? To buy something they needed or to take a gift to the poor. And yet John tells us, looking back on all the things he had learned since that time, that <clears throat> he wasn't concerned about the poor. 
He didn't even care for the poor, unless you talk about his favorite charity, himself. (laughs) And that's all he had going for him. He saw it as an opportunist, opportunity there to make money on the side and to sell out the Lord. Now, he teaches us a lesson of worth. What is the Lord worth to us? Judas sized it up and he came to the grand total of 300 denarii for the spikenard. But that's what he was worth to Mary, a whole pound. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to prepare the Lord's body for burial after his death. And do you remember what they brought? Compared to Mary, one pound, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they brought a hundred pounds of spices to prepare his body for burial. Make a little comparison. To Mary, he was worth a whole pound, and it was a lot. But to them, a hundred times that. And what's he worth to me? What's he worth to us? To Judas, he said, this act of worship to the Lord gives me a quick count of his worth, worth 300 denarii. And yet, when Judas sold the Lord out, he said he's just worth a tenth of that. Give me 30 pieces. And then he realized he had betrayed innocent blood. You and I, we, we would never do that with the Lord's help. And yet we are still called to take the lessons and the principle into play and ask my own heart. You get to listen in. What's he worth to me? Listen, he's worth everything. Compared to all the things of this world. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All his joys are but a name. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he surpasses all in his worth. He is worthy to be praised, and he is worthy to receive a sevenfold blessing that far exceeds anything this world has to offer. May the Lord help us just to say, even from Judas, what waste, no, not what waste, what worship do we see that the Lord is worthy to receive and he's worth every bit and even more? How could we do less than give him our best and to see This is the one who proved his worth by paying the highest price ever paid for anything in all the universe when he gave himself to redeem us, not by corruptible things like silver or gold, like Judas was counting, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish, God gave his very best, and he gave him not only to us, but he gave him for us. And so we take the lesson, even from someone like, here's your last chance to hiss, Judas Iscariot. (laughs) And we say, I learned the lesson. The Lord is worth far more than what anyone could ever offer. We see our next lesson comes from the Lord Jesus himself. And in verses 7 and 8 of John chapter 12, we read of the Lord coming to defense, to the defense of Mary of Bethany. Now that's not the lesson we learn. I'll give you the word for the lesson we learn in just a moment. But I'd like you to think about his defense. First of all, it was one of protection. The Lord protects his people. 
And in verse 7, we read the Lord speaking up, let her alone. And so we see his protection the same way that God has protected his own children, Israel, like in the case of protecting the children of Israel from Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, When his people were fleeing from Egypt, the Lord said, we're going down to the Red Sea. And they got to the brink of the Red Sea, and there was Moses standing there. And uh, like someone said, don't just stand there, Moses, do something. And God said, don't just do something, Moses, stand there. (laughs) Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And he parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground. And you understand, that was a tremendous miracle. He brought Israel out with a strong and mighty arm. And here's what he said in Exodus 14. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. How would he do it? Well, he brought Israel out safely into the promised land, or at least out of Egypt. But then he brought the waters over Pharaoh's chariots and all of his army, and he gained honor. That's going to be our lesson. Honor. How? By his Powerful protection over his people. And we think of the children of Israel and we say, does he protect us like this? Oh, absolutely. Hold your place here and let me take you over to the book of Romans again. Romans chapter 8 this time. And at the end of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I love to hear the pages move. Because I know everybody's wide awake. You know, this is the hardest meeting of the whole conference. All that nice barbecue, all that nice chicken, mac and cheese and baked beans. I mean, what are we talking about here? Uh, It's a tough time right now. I try to find somebody that agrees with what I'm saying and gives me just that little nod of encouragement. I saw one man at a conference at this same meeting time, and he nodded to me and nodded to me and nodded to me. (laughs) It was over. So when you turn to Romans chapter 8, I'll keep you awake by making you turn in your Bible. You come to that last part of Romans 8. I tell you, Romans 8 is a powerful chapter, isn't it? I mean, anything after Romans 7 has got to be good, right? And uh, all the things we wanted to do and didn't do, and we did the things we didn't want to do, and I never can read it without getting tongue-tied. But when I get to Romans chapter 8, I know what we have. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ for those who are in Christ. God has done a wonderful work, and he protects his finished product. And so you get to the end of Romans chapter 8, and I'll just mention to you, God is for us. He is also in us. And he is with us. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 31 it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Who can be against us? So we have God making this statement. And it's one of profound protection. Against all the things that would be against us. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him. Also freely give us all things. When the angel made the announcement to Zacharias, Zacharias doubted the word of the angel and said, how shall this be? But that's the unbelief speaking. Here's what belief says. How shall he not with us? 
with him freely give us all things. And so the eye of faith and the words of faith, how shall he not? He's given his very best. He'll give us all the rest. And verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he names seven things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Absolutely not. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's verse 37. We are divinely protected by the mighty God. And the same way the Lord Jesus stood in protection of Mary of Bethany, (coughs) he stands in protection even over us. Can we be sure about that? I heard about the evangelist. They called him the crazy preacher down in Nassau. Got to have some water, sorry. I don't want to be a dry preacher here. They called him the crazy preacher down in, in Nassau. Because he went everywhere preaching Christ. And he went from one establishment to another. And many of the folks who had businesses there, they tried to avoid him. And the worker, the clerk at the front of the store saw him come in. And he called back to the proprietor and he said, Madam, the crazy preacher has just come in. I'm still in Romans 8. You stay there too because you can appreciate this better. And when she saw him, she said, I'll have you know I'm of the Anglican persuasion. Of which persuasion are you? He said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor Angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, that's a good persuasion to be of, isn't it? We are protected by the mighty God. And we are persuaded, absolutely convinced, with no doubt about it whatsoever, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Nothing can harm us. No fear or alarm us. If the worst thing happened to me, it'd be the best thing. (laughs) To be absent from the body, present with the Lord. What a great God we have. And one who protects us. Why? Because he is the one who is going, just like with Moses over Pharaoh, gain honor. And in this world, he is going to gain honor for himself by protecting his own people. I could lose my car, I could lose my house, I could lose my wealth, I could lose my health, but I can't lose the salvation that God has given me in Christ. I am eternally protected. Safe am I, safe am I in the hollow of his hands. All that the Father has given me, I'll not lose one. No one can pluck them out of my hand. The Father who gave them me is greater than all. No one shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are safe, aren't we? eternally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a protection we enjoy. A brother down in Augusta, Georgia said, I'm so secure in Christ, I could swing over hell on a rotten pea vine and sing Amazing Grace the whole way. (laughs) I didn't say that, but he said it. And I believe what he said was true. That's how safe we are. Nothing can change that. 
and we're so thankful. So you go back to John chapter 12 and for just a moment to say, all right, his protection over Mary. I thank God for the honor that is due unto his name because he protects me that way. His honor is at stake if he loses any of us and he'll not lose one. The purpose, he also explains, for what she did in verse 7 was kept for the day of his burial. He knew exactly why Mary did not use that spikenard for Lazarus when he died because she was saving it for him and prepared his body for burial. So that's the purpose. Mary, she had listened to his words. She knew the secret, the plans, and what was ahead. He had told his disciples time and time again, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed and given into the hands of the chief priest, and they will crucify him. He, He explained it all, and they missed it every time. You know why? They were arguing about who was the greatest among them. But Mary, she listened and kept these things whenever he spoke. And she must have understood. And compared to the other Marys, like Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and whoever the other Mary is, together with Salome and Joanna, who came early in the morning after his death, after his burial, with the spices to prepare his body for burial. When they got there, they were too late. They got there while it was still dark, but the sun had already risen. Check the spelling on the sun. And yet, Mary of Bethany, she would not be cheated this wonderful opportunity. And the Lord knew it. And Mary knew it. It's just nobody else could catch on. And he mentions the purpose. She hath kept this for the day of my burial. Then we have the principle in verse 8. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. What is the principle here? The principle is simple. If we're going to do anything for him, the best time to do it is, help me out, now. I thought you were going to say manana. <laughs> or in Swahili, kesho. They all sound the same, don't they? All the plans we have for tomorrow. They don't mean a thing. When it comes to salvation, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The only time we could ever do anything for the Lord is now. Not because you don't know a better time, because there is no other time. He's the eternal God. He lives in the now. If we're going to do anything for him, we do it in the now. My friend Ray said his aunt used to tell him, Ray, don't send flowers to my funeral. Give them to me now. (laughs) I like that. I mean, that's the time to do it. And there are so many people you and I both know. We probably have a list of people we want to talk to about the Lord. And we're waiting for an opportune time. Don't be fooled. Today is the day. And when it comes to service, Joshua stood up with a rock right beside him who listened to all the words of Joshua in Joshua 24. And he said, choose ye this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to do it today. This is the time. And the principle is, don't put it off any longer. 
You got some matters to straighten out be some, between you and someone else? <laughs> Wait for a better time. Don't. Do it now. That we might have a clear path between us and the Lord and fellow believers. Something you want to do, something you want to give, something you want to be. And thanks for letting me labor this a little bit. But realize, this is the time. There's the principle. The poor you have with you always, me you do not always have. Well, it might not be exactly word for word, but while we still have breath, while we still have breath, this is the time to do it. And then it's followed by a promise. The promise is not found in the Gospel of John, I understand. But you and I know that the promise is there. In the Gospel of Matthew, here's what the Lord said about what Mary of Bethany had done. And it was all in protection of her. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in all the world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. She has done what she could. And you know the widow, she gave all she had. Mary of Bethany has done what she could. And I think about this promise, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, what she has done, this anointing and preparing the Lord's body for burial as an act of worship, in his protection, he extends that protection throughout the entire history of this world. And he said, what she's done is going to be told as a memorial for, what a promise. I've been in the U.S. and I heard the story. I went to Africa, and they're telling the same story. Over in England, same story. Over in Switzerland, same story. In Canada, they tell the same story. Even down in the Bahamas, suffering with the saints, they tell the story of what Mary did and how the Lord promised wherever the gospel is preached. That is quite a promise, isn't it? It's quite an honor that the Lord has given her. And that honor is one of protection. That honor claimed her purpose. That honor has given us a principle to follow. But that honor is held in a promise. And he still honors her today. You say, well, yeah, but that's Mary. Well, let me just have you look in John chapter 12 where we are. And come right down to verse 26. And that same honor can be given to you. John 12, 26 says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father will honor. What does honor mean? He's going to protect us. What does honor mean? He's going to give us the privilege of serving him. What does honor mean? It means that we want to honor him. And what does honor mean? Those who honor him, he will honor. I was asked to write in Choice Cleaning Calendars back in the year 2000. I've been writing for, I can't believe it, 23 years now. In fact, 24 because I already got next year's done. But if you take the Choice Cleaning Calendar and enjoy the meditations, uh, I want you to know we have rules for writing. Rules like 140 words maximum. And uh, I mean, you think a, a, an hour sermon is hard. 
Try saying it in 140 words. The less the words, the harder it is. But we also have some rules on spelling. Some of the old rules gave me a hard time. Like uh, <clears throat> how to spell honor. You notice in the King James Bible and some of our hymn books and the old English spelling spells it H-O-N-O-U-R. And I'd write it out and I'd have honor and I'd notice when it came out in the calendar it had been corrected. You've got to follow the rules. So I talked to Jabe Nichols and I said, I'm having a hard time with these old English spellings. I said, I'm glad you got a good editor there. They can check it, fix it before it's published. And I said, but it feels so strange to write <clears throat> honor with a U. And he said, oh, that's easy, Brother Rex. He said, uh, whenever God speaks of honor, he doesn't leave you out. <laughs> now it starts making sense. The Lord delights to honor you. And he wants you to receive the honor. But the only way he gives us the honor is those who honor the Lord, the Lord will honor. What a lesson we have from the Lord Jesus himself. His honor is at stake and you can find it in him. We come to the very last lesson. This is dessert around the table. And it's in verses 9 through 11 and just the first few words of verse 12. And it's a lesson from people. Be honest now, how many people watchers do we have? Now, you know what I mean, people watchers. You know, like you go to the restaurant <clears throat> and you're looking at everybody around you, what they ordered. And you ask the waitress, what one, what number is that one on the menu? Huh? <clears throat> or you go to the mall or wherever and you start looking at people. I'll be with Nancy and <clears throat> I notice her eyes start trailing. I said, who are you looking at? <laughs> people watchers, huh? Well, <clears throat> we can look at the people in these last few verses and we have something to watch. And I'll tell you who they are. Verse 9 is the Jews. And you'll notice that it's a great many of the Jews. They knew he was there. That's the Lord Jesus. Not only that, they came to see him because they knew he was there. But here's the surprise. They did not come just for Jesus' sake only, but they also came to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, those great many Jews, think of it. They wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. Lazarus? Who would have ever thought about Lazarus? I mean, I already told you, nothing in the Bible records anything he had to say, so it's not his talk. It was his walk. <laughs> Somebody who was dead, up walking around, full of life. We want to see him. We want to actually see him as eyewitnesses that he's alive again. And so, first of all, the Jews. What did they want to see about him? Well, they wanted to see how alive he was. In fact, I'd like to spiritualize it just a little bit. It's because of Christ that he was alive again. And we look at our lives who were dead in our trespasses and sins, now made alive, seated together with Christ in the heavenlies, what do they want to see in us? They want to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Living in us, living through us, they want to see as eyewitnesses that they might see 
Christ in us. And may they see him and forget the channel seeing only him. And so as the Jews were there, a great many of them, they wanted to see him. If people look at our lives, what do we want them to see? Us? No. We want them to see Christ. I like the little poem that was in William McDonald's commentary. I've updated just a little bit, but it goes like this. You've heard it before. We each write a gospel, a chapter a day by the things that we do and the things that we say. Our actions betray as words faithful and true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? We proclaim to know the Lord through the gospel message. And the world wants to see what change it has made. I enjoyed having the other favorite hymn in the congregational singing. Since Jesus came into my heart. What a change. What a difference he has made. And others want to see Christ in you. But you'll notice another group was there. They wanted to see something too. But they weren't looking with happy anticipation. Verse 10 tells us the chief priest. They wanted to see him too. In fact, they were plotting to put Lazarus to death also. Now, why would they want to put Lazarus to death? I mean, they already wanted to put Jesus to death, but they want to put Lazarus to death too. They sought to destroy the testimony of the power of the Lord Jesus to raise people from the dead. And so they had to get rid of the evidence. (laughs) But the more they tried to destroy the testimony, the greater the testimony grew. And I'll show you, you've got the proof of it. But I want to tell you, if any of the chief priests included the Sadducees, we're not surprised at that, are we? They want any evidence of the resurrection out of the way because they didn't believe in the resurrection. No wonder they were sad, you see. By the time you get to the book of Acts, if you just hold your place here for a moment, I'm thinking of this great many of the Jews and the chief priest and the fact that the witness is growing and expanding, getting bigger all the time. By the time you get to the book of Acts, chapter 6, would you notice what verse 7 tells us? Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many. That's the same phrase we had of the Jews. Here it says a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. How did all this come about? It was one witness telling another witness what another witness saw and what another witness saw and how it expanded and multiplied and spread and became a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. They put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ all because of the power of a witness to the great many Jews, to the chief priests. And you'll notice also when you come right down to verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away. And what did they do? They believed in Jesus. Never underestimate the power and effect of your witness, as simple as it may be. Just tell what he did. I was lost. He saved me. He became to me everything and freely bestowed the gift of eternal life. And he offers it to whosoever will believe in him. The simplicity of the witness gives more power to our testimony and witness than anything else. And you move from one place to another, from the great many of the Jews, even the chief priests, even though they were trying to destroy what had happened, 
it did nothing but propagated the message to go further. The more pressure you put on a water fountain, (laughs) further it sprays. And that's what the testimony was doing and the witness was reaching out to the many, as you have there in verse 11, who went away and believed in Jesus. They couldn't stay there. Things had to change. Till you finally get to the first few words of verse 12. The next day a great multitude. (laughs) Never underestimate the impact of a life that's been changed by the Lord. Be a witness. And this witness, well it all started with Lazarus, didn't it? That's where we started around the table. And around this table we've seen lessons all about fellowship and serving. All about hospitality and worship all about worth and worthiness and honor and now a witness i'd say every assembly needs a lazarus (laughs) a living walking talking breathing witness the testimony of a soul set free to walk and follow the lord and that's what we want to be for him if we learn our lessons around the table May the Lord stir our hearts as we've spent this time together in his word. May it be a blessing to you. And let's share it with someone else along the way. Shall we close in a word of prayer? I'm just closing my part. Don't leave. There's more to come. Father, we want to thank you for the good things that you've given us the privilege to share together this day. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to use your word to do your work in our lives and through our lives. All for your honor and glory, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Reports on various ministries. Our camp director could not be here today, so she asked if I would share the report. I said, I can do that. So while he's coming up and getting us squared away on the uh, projector, just a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to Camp Horizon in Leesburg, Florida? That's about half, right? Hands down. That's good. So let me just share a little bit about this. The camp there was purchased in 1975, and the first summer was in 76. I was a wee lad. I went to camp when I was there in 76. And now here we are, 50... I should know some math teacher. 47 years later. 47 years later, and we're in that same location. And it's grown a bit. We've added some cabins, added some other buildings, and so on. Uh, but it's one of the ministries that are involved, the assemblies as a whole, get behind this particular ministry. And I think one of the reasons is, is because when children come to our chapel, we have them for maybe an hour less when you think about the Sunday school actual lesson time, to share Christ. Ah, but when you send them to camp, they've got a whole week where they're going to get the God's word at every meal, two chapels, and uh, and the cabin devotions. So they're saturated with it. They get to watch Christ being lived out. And we see many children come to know Christ as Savior. I would say in our particular assembly... Over the last, well, since we our inception, one person has come to know the Lord. We rejoice that there was one, right? But I'm just saying that here, 
many come to know the Lord's Savior. So we're going to just share a little bit about what goes on up at camp and invite you to pray for it or come to be a part of it. So I gave you a little bit about the... The background, the guests, so we have, besides the summer season, we have a uh, uh, retreats during the off-season. As a matter of fact, this weekend, uh, there's a father-son canoe trip. Probably 16 dads, or at this point, they might have made it to the campsite. They're paddling down the Oklawaha River uh, for a chance to spend some time with their sons, and in a few more weeks, it'll be the father-daughter canoe trip. We tried to get a mother-daughter canoe trip, but it hasn't really panned out. We, Mother-daughter mall trip is what we're thinking might work. uh, But a good chance. And there are other things. We have a married couples retreat, a family camp. Um, We've enjoyed having uh, the assemblies be a part of those retreats. But there's also, we we rent to other evangelical groups. And here's just a little info about the number of users and the number of nights and the number of meals served there at the camp. Now, I show you that because just so you know, there's employed full-time are two people, Jennifer Montero, Dr. Jennifer Montero, pharmacist by day, camp director the rest of the time. She is our camp administrator director and currently doing food service and program. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Brother Ron Ward and his wife Linda, they're serving mainly the physical plant. Linda does a lot of the cleanup stuff, but Ron does the maintenance. Uh, So when we have groups that come, we need cooks. We need folks to set tables. We need people to wash dishes. Where's Knowles? He's a, I have a cook right there. That guy cooks uh, uh, wonderfully for, in the summer uh, for different things. So uh, if, you're, if you have an interest and in, say, I can't really come in the summer, or I'm not even here in the summer. It's hot in Florida. I go back north in the summer. Okay, that's fine. Maybe say, you know, Jen, I can come up maybe and help on a weekend when you've got one of these little guest groups in, an opportunity to be of service there at the camp and be a little bit more aware of it. The summer season, we have, uh, well, Five weeks, uh, this year we're going to add one, but five weeks of camp, uh, that's 30 no- overnight stays because we don't have uh, any campers on Saturday night. We begin Sunday, we end on Saturday, and we have two of the, um, this youth group would be the middle school age, these are the elementary, 8 to uh, 11, and these are uh, the middle school, I think it's 12 to, well actually it's 11 to, 15, 11 to 14. And then the high, uh, high school, the varsity camp at the very end. And you can see we've, this is from, uh, trying to do this with my mouth instead of from the front with a pointer, but, uh, four, 543 overnight guests in 2021. This past summer that went up to 662, more meals served. So the camp is being utilized, uh, there. Some, uh, one of the things we like to do is at least have some tab on how many kids are, come to, Know the Lord, and this is an imperfect science because it comes from doing evaluations through the counselors. So the counselors are asked to report: Did any of those campers in your cabin get saved? And there are some that they will be able to tell you: Yes, this child made a profession. But there are other children who come to camp. They come under the conviction of the Spirit, and either there or when they leave, they come to know Christ as Savior. Those will not be reported here, but in glory, we'll know about all of them, right? So this past summer, 19 campers professed to be saved. 29 were counseled for assurance. And other could be those that came with a clear testimony and left that way or came with an unclear testimony and left that way. We do still get a number of kids that are believers, but we also get children whose parents, 
They won't send their kids elsewhere, but the Christians, we can send them to go to the Christian camp. I had a kid last year in my cabin, unsafe family. The parents just picked the week, the week to go because all three kids fit in that age group. And after Sunday night's chapel, the next day I told the kids, now we're going back to chapel at two. So they could talk about God again? I, I said, well, Josh, they sent you, did your parents not tell you they sent you to a Bible camp? This is a Christian camp. This is the whole point. He, you know, a lot of the kids, they just want to do swimming and canoeing and all that, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to evangelize and disciple. Here's a lineup for this coming summer. It's got actually last year and this year. This year's lineup, you'll notice the one added line was CIT. That's Christian Intensive Training. Uh, it's required for the non-adult staff. It's optional for anyone else. Brother Larry Price will be taking that. Unlike our other camps that have two chapels, this is like five to six sessions a day, and it is intense time. that The, the participants have to pass a test at the very end of the week. Then you'll see the... Uh, the speakers and uh, directors, I think that's a misprint. Chris McCluskey's not there twice. That, by the way, PD, we were hoping to have already hired a full-time program director. We have not, so we're praying that the Lord will still raise a couple up or a, a, a person that would be a burden to serve full-time in the program section of the camp. But good to have all those folks that are uh, going to be a part of the ministry this summer. We'll ask you to pray for each of them. So here are some things you can praise the Lord for when you're thinking about the camp work. We've been able, even with a very small staff, you know, when the Slussers and Vandemarks left, we said it was just Steve and Ralph, but it really wasn't. Kitty and Lucy were, you know, working many hours, and so you really had four employees. We're down to two, but we've been able to continue the uh, current camp schedule and events with a, an increase of volunteer help. Um, and as, praise the Lord, there are groups that are, that used to come to the camp that are now returning, uh, post COVID. So we had more campers this past summer and we're, and we're hoping to have more this coming summer in 2023. We also have three lifeguards who took the class. They're trained and we'll have those to work at the pool. And we did have an increase in adult counselors. Now by adult, she doesn't mean 18. What she means is 40. All right. All right. And there's a reason for that. Um, when I was 16, and guys, you can understand this. When you're 16, we're ready. We know everything, right? We know nothing. When you become a parent, you realize how little you knew at 16 to be counseling a 10-year-old. What do you know? But if you have or had children the age of the campers, you're a valued commodity to come. All right, I've been last a few last five or six summers counseling. They go really easy on me. I didn't, even teach, I didn't even teach classes this last time. I was just really there for, for being a, um, a spiritual influence in the cabin. My junior counselor did all the running with the kids, so I didn't have to. So if you think, oh, I can't do that, I, I'm too old for that, talk to me afterwards. We'll see if it's something that fits, fits the bill. And, um, and we would love to have men and women that are older that can come be that spiritual direction in the cabin. You'll be assigned someone who's 16 or 17 that can run with the kids. But we do really want to have more adult counselors. No emergency department visits this past summer. We're thankful for that. Some things to pray for. Do pray for the campers and staff this coming year. Do pray for additional full-time staff. The permanent staff housing renovations are going on. We've got the uh, wards settled into one side. Jen's still living in a little camper waiting for them to finish that other side. Pray for the strength and health of the current and full-time staff. 
There are our list of needs. We need summer staff. We need retreat volunteers. And we need volunteers to complete the duplex renovations. We didn't hire for that. We had to hire for the roofers to come in and re-roof. But we have uh, volunteers that have been doing the renovations and some brothers in particular. And I just got another one. I got now, I got to tap Rusty uh, because I just found out, uh, uh, I say skis, it's not skis, Harris. Yeah, that guy's got his general contractor license. We'll get his number, get him out there at the place to help be a help, right? Uh, fantastic. We need volunteers for that. And there's more information. You can go to the website. On the table in the back, there are two pieces of uh, information you could take. The card is more for those interested in uh, summer staff opportunities. It's got information about how to apply and the dates. This bro- These brochures are things you can give to people who might be interested in being campers at the camp. Um, and we even have brought back paper applications if the uh, person that's going to fill them out uh, or come doesn't isn't comfortable applying online uh, to send their child or grandchild or neighbor's kid to the camp. All right, so we appreciate your prayer for the work at camp. We've got two other, and I do apologize, I went two minutes, about ten minutes each, right? So I, I did it, went over a little. We're going to invite our brother Phil Geikema up. He's going to report on the Bear Lake Christian School, and immediately after that, our brother Dave Burson on the church planting software. And then when they're done, uh, ensemble, I won't introduce you, but you'll be coming back up right after our brother Dave. Sorry, Trent. Thank you, Billy. <clears throat> Mention a few things about one other aspect. And that's Skyland Bible Conference. And I saw a brochure on the back table, so you're aware of it here at Lake Howell. But it is a new location for Skyland this year. We're going to the Eastern Mennonite University. It's located in Harrisburg, uh, Virginia, Harrisonburg, Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, a beautiful, beautiful place in the world. And uh, <clears throat> it's a step up for the conference now, this has been nice to have a meal today, but you know there were a number of people involved in doing this meal and the cleanup and all that goes with it. When you come to Skyland, everything's provided. Nobody has to wash dishes, okay? <clears throat> and it's a great occasion for fellowship with like-minded believers all over the southeast United States, including the Bahamas. And you'll get to meet a lot of neat folks and it will expand your horizons. Our speakers this year are Mike Atwood, Steve Price, and Nate Bramson. So we'd love to have you come and join us. It's always over the 4th of July. So the date is July 1 through 7, 2023. You don't need this brochure to sign up. It's skylandbible.org. Really simple. And it's $25 per person, maximum of $100 for a family to register. And all the details are online. So please take a moment and reflect. A lot of folks from Florida attend every year. So we had to mention that. A little bit about the ministry that we have at Bear Lake Bible Chapel called Bear Lake Christian Academy. It's over 30 years in existence. It's an outreach program for our community And we have consistently reached out to many people in the area. We especially especially appreciate your prayers for one of our teachers. She just went through a stroke, and she's recovering. She's doing well. Her name is Mrs. May Krogh, 
and uh, we're thankful she's home, and she's actually graduating from the walker to the cane now. She's making great progress, and nothing to do with her speech or her functioning mentally, cognitively. She's fine. It's just a problem walking right now, and so we appreciate your prayers for her. Um, do you understand that young people are misbehaving today? Is, is that a statement you can identify? Young people are misbehaving today? <clears throat> One-third of all teachers in public school have experienced verbal harassment or the threat of violence from students today. One-third of all teachers. That's a lot of teachers. Fourteen percent of teachers have been physically attacked, and every once in a while you'll hear a news blurb about someone in our local community who was attacked by a student. One happened just very recently, a serious attack in the hallway. Um, We know that many surveys have been taken. Uh, We understand the threat and the concerns. One survey had almost 15,000 teachers, administrators, and so forth surveyed. And they found that 43% of teachers said in the survey that they want to quit teaching. 43% want to teach, teach, quit teaching. Um, we have a crisis of epidemic proportion today. <clears throat> we have counselors and school leaders, administrators, superintendents, and principals in October survey found that 63% of those administrators are considering quitting as a result of the high stress, no-win stakes of leading education today. And pray for Billy. Let me tell you, it's not easy. It's a stressful job. To illustrate this a little bit more, there was a, in New Smyrna Beach, we have some folks here from New Smyrna Beach, uh, a recent rise in juvenile crime so that the commissioners voted unanimously just a few weeks ago for a citywide curfew of unaccompanied minors effective immediately from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. Sunday through Thursday and 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. on Friday, Saturday. What is that telling you? That young people are going crazy. They're out alone, without accompaniment, without parental controls, by themselves, all hours of the night. And they had to put this down as a curfew. I did some research on that recently, and I found out the entire state of Florida has been under curfew by our legislative session and our governor, bless his heart. It's not a local problem. It's throughout our state, and I brought with me the printout of that particular statute in Florida that states all young people in the entire state of Florida are under a curfew. You cannot be out alone by yourself in the middle of the night in a restaurant or anywhere, or the police will take you, and the law states that they have two hours to get in touch with your parents. If they cannot get in touch with your parents, then they will, they will continue legal matters and they will escort you personally by police car to your home to talk to your parents. And you will be fined after this happens repeatedly. Um, 
kids going crazy. This is true in public schools. It's true in our communities. We have a burden for young people. And our desire is to teach them the right way how to live, who we are answerable to. In a traditional classroom, we find that there's much that is lacking when it comes to a Bible-based worldview. Every lesson in our school is taught from a biblical worldview. We help students to critically think and be able to discern truth. From a Christian perspective, the Word of God provides the foundation for a worldwide view that cannot be shaken. God is the maker of heaven and earth and stands as the pinnacle of truth for us today. God has absolute knowledge and he is unmovable. You can't change him. Having a biblical worldwide view is critical because, listen, it's the only true worldwide view. It's a message that we have to proclaim today that folks need to hear and understand, especially our young people. So we have a Bible-based curriculum with a worldview. We also in our school provide individual learning. We believe this is needed today because students are unique. Each person unique to their own abilities. Perhaps they're very good in math, but poor in English, or good in social studies, but not good in science. And so we can design our curriculum to each individual's need, to bring them through their weakness and to emphasize their strong points. Mastery learning is necessary, which is not found in a traditional classroom, because in a traditional classroom, if you fail a test, what happens? Well, the teacher moves on and the class moves on to the next part of their curriculum. What about the student who failed? They're left behind. Nothing's done for them. In our school, you cannot fail. You have to pass everything with at least an 80% to get a passing grade. In our word building uh, studies, you have to have a 90% to pass. You have to have mastery learning. What happens if you don't get that? You go back to that portion and you relearn it until you do master it. What doesn't change is learning. It's not based on time. It's based on learning. Not how many years you're in school, but what are you learning? That's what our curriculum is based on. And of course, Christian character is our primary goal. Primary goal of of our school is to see students wanting to love God and to serve him with their whole heart and to be that example even in their homes, which may be unchristian. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example. And we challenge our students with that. So we have seen over the years some great things happen We have seen students every year accept Christ as their Savior. Every year we have students who 
after chapel or maybe in their desk putting up a flag. That's how they get the attention of the teacher who comes to them and and say, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. That's the greatest joy of working with students, seeing that happen. Um, Pray for the ministry. We love to hear ministries and what's going on in every assembly. And so we take this opportunity at conference time to try to encourage assemblies to tell us what they're doing. <clears throat> so this is one of our main outreaches at Bear Lake Bible Chapel. And it's been a joy to see some families and some students attending chapel, and we long to see more of them doing so. So we appreciate your prayers for this ministry. Thank you. There's a lot going on locally, statewide, and around the world. (laughs) And it's the same God in all of it. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Um, The ministry that I'm a part of here, my wife and I, uh, are working with Ethnos 360, writing software, because missionaries need software. So it turns out, When a missionary goes around the world, and suppose they go into the jungle in Papua New Guinea, for example, uh, they may have to create an alphabet for that language. So first they're going to have to learn the language. Then they're going to have to maybe create an alphabet for that language if it's never been written down before, so that they can then translate the Bible into that language and be able to do all a, a myriad of tasks that are all involved in planting a church among a people group that has never heard the gospel before. So our software is um, f- to help in any of those tasks wherever a computer can be helpful. Now, a computer is not going to get people saved. It's not going to evangelize. We can't launch a probe from Orlando and land in Papua New Guinea and spit out a New Testament in six months or something from the probe. This is just to help... The software is going to be used by missionaries. It is being used by missionaries in their process of learning culture, learning language, um, creating teaching aids. Because, you know, once you've uh, just developed an alphabet, then if you need teaching aids, visual aids, to help people understand the message of truth that you're bringing, uh, you're going to have to create those because nobody else has that language. So we have software that helps in the process of that. Um, Literacy. If you've just created the alphabet, then you've got to teach people to read their own language. They spoke it. They speak it better than you do, but they don't know how to read. They can't read their language. So you have to create a curriculum to help them learn how to read their own language because that's going to be necessary to see a church grow to maturity. They can't read the scriptures. You can translate the Bible and hand it to them, and they can stick it on their shelf as a lucky charm. But if they want to actually get good out of it, they've got to be able to read it. So literacy is a huge, important thing as well. Um, There's a verse in James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Well, as part of the universal church, We don't want to treat our missionaries that way, right? We don't want to say, go in peace, learn culture and language, 
develop an alphabet, create a literacy curriculum, create your visual teaching aids, translate the scripture, and do you know whatever else is needed to plant a local church in this people group that's never had the gospel before and see that church grow to maturity. Go have do those things. Well, we want to also give them what tools we can, right? So, in this case, uh, you know, computers, all this, that all that work can be and has historically been done with no computers. Computers are a relatively new invention when it talk when you're talking missions, right? Missions goes way back. Computers are pretty new. But it turns out computers can be a huge help and save a lot of time and also bring a lot of clarity in um, decisions and understanding. Um, So I'm not going to give you examples and technical talk on the computer aspects here. But uh, uh, just as an example, last Sunday, our uh, guest speaker here had reminded us about his father, who was in Papua New Guinea, by the way. I believe, or some part of New Guinea Island. Um, he was telling us about uh, when he was finally got to the level of language and understanding of the people where he could start trying to tell stories of Jesus. And so he's trying to teach these guys about Jesus. And they're sitting there in the men's hut thing, which is was on up in a tree. That's the way that, that tribe worked. And... Um, He's talking to these folks about the Last Supper and Jesus' betrayal. And he gets to the point of where Judas betrays Jesus. And they all thought, oh, that's great. They're no longer interested in Jesus at all. They want to hear about Judas. He's the hero. Well, you kind of need to understand where your people are coming from if you're going to really communicate, right? You need to know how they're thinking. Because he, thankfully, was good enough in language that he was able to understand and with further conversation, understand that, hey, this tribe, betrayal of a friend is highly respected. That's one of the greatest things you can do. Well, you know, that doesn't go, you're going to need to know that, or otherwise when you preach the gospel, you're not communicating what you thought you were communicating, right? So learning the culture, learning the language at a very deep level is extremely important. And so we have software that we're working on, um, right now that's really kind of taking that to a new level as the whole field of how do you go about learning a culture, learning a language continues to progress. Uh, We're we're working with uh, a number of consultants from all over the world in creating software that's going to really help with that. Um, So it looks like my time is just about up here. So uh, Mainly, I guess the main thing we've got in our ministry is just all about software that a missionary will use when they're trying to reach a people group who's never had the gospel or has very little gospel influence. You're reaching unreached people, people who have no concept of the truth. They're living in utter darkness, and uh, um, there's different things about how to create a literacy. Uh, For example, our literacy suite of software now, um, before our software existed, people were creating literacy cl- curriculum because you have to. You ha- people have to learn to read their own language, right? Otherwise, translating the Bible does no good. So that would take 18 months to two years on average of full-time work for a missionary to do that. Um, I've heard of one lady, it took her 10 years. Um, now, <coughs> excuse me, um, now... With our software, it's being done in three weeks at a a workshop where multiple languages can come together 
in one workshop where one trainer uses our software and they all work through things together. And for each of those languages, they go away for the end of three weeks and they have a full-blown literacy curriculum that is in, usually in a number of ways superior to what people were even able to create by hand. Just because it turns out some of these tasks are all about crunching numbers, data processing. That's what computers are made for. You can do it by hand, but it takes a lot longer and you have a lot more inaccuracies. So that's just some of the examples. Um, we appreciate prayer for us if you guys think of it. Wisdom for design decisions. And one of the things that I really appreciate prayer for is somebody to join full-time in this ministry. We have far more work to do than we have time to do. I have, I have projects that have been waiting for like a couple of years that I haven't been able to get to yet because I'm the only person right now in our department doing this. So appreciate your prayers for that. I'm very thankful for my wife and her background in culture and language as she grew up in, in the jungle as well. And so she, um, she knows quite a bit about the kinds of things I'm trying to make the software do. So I will stop there because I'm going over time. Just want to make sure I'm supposed to come up now, right? <clears throat> More important when I come down. I know that. I know that. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John once again, chapter 12. And as you find your place there, I'd like to give a little advertisement for a couple of ministries that we've been involved in since coming home from Africa. A number of years ago, Nancy, with a ladies' Bible study, had a request from one of the sisters because of something she was going through. She said, would you send me a Bible verse or two? So Nancy sent her a little note, email, with a Bible verse on it. And the next time the ladies had a meeting, the sister said, thank you so much for the Bible verse. It was just what I needed. And the other ladies in the meeting said, what Bible verse? We didn't get it. And so from that, about eight years ago, manna in the morning was begun. And it was a ministry where Nancy will just send out one Bible verse every morning with just the shortest little explanation about that Bible verse. And it's, the verse itself is embedded in a beautiful picture that she's either taken or found along the way. And it's called manna in the morning. That's not very original. Started way back in Exodus, right? But it is still going on through the eating and digesting of the word of God. And uh, she has uh, seen manna in the morning reach out to a lot of different people, a lot of different places. And if you're interested, we've brought along what we call, old-fashioned, a sign-up sheet. And all it takes for either the ladies or some of you brothers, if you're interested in getting Bible verse, uh, you put your name on one column and your email address on the other column. And so you'll find a sign-up sheet on the table on the right on the way out. That doesn't mean you have to leave right now, but it'll be there when you get there. <clears throat> After Nancy had started manna in the morning, we came into the COVID season. How do you reach out to people during COVID? And <clears throat> the everyday publications up in uh, Port Colborne, Ontario, contacted me. And my good friend, Brian Cretney, helped me to set up doing video messages, as many people did during COVID. 
But out of all that came what they call feed my sheep. You're going to like this. It's a two-minute message. It's a two-minute message on a video. And so it's very brief. And the reason is, and we entitle it Feed My Sheep, the Lord has sheep all around the world. And having worked in the Congo for 10 years and seen the great need there, we were burdened because we had planned to go back. And even though we had made four trips back, it wasn't safe to stay Not safe for us, not safe for the people. We tend to draw trouble. Whenever you have a Westerner in the middle of Africa, they tend to attract attention. So uh, the Lord gave us a way to reach out. And so we started with a conversation with Everyday Publications to put a devotional book together in Swahili. And then one of the men said, if you're going to do it in Swahili, do it in English as well. And talking with our African committee that we meet with every month via Zoom. I mean, when we were there, you could hardly get on short wave. Now everybody has cell phones and computers and Internet connections. So we Zoomed together with the African committee. And they said what we could really use is a brief video message, no longer than two minutes each, so that we can share it around on our WhatsApp on our phones. And so... Over a year ago, we started. It's now reaching into about 15 countries, not only in Africa and Swahili and in English, because many of the African nations are wanting to go into English, even places like Rwanda, uh, Burundi, uh, even the Congo. Working in Uganda, of course, is English-speaking. Kenya is English-speaking. So many places there. And if you don't mind me just taking another moment, funny thing is these messages that we're sending via WhatsApp are crisscrossing. And so they're even going down to South Africa where they don't speak Swahili, but they know somebody who works there in South Africa in the embassy who has family back in the Congo, and he sends it up in Swahili. And uh, the rest are getting it in English as well. And so now we're seeing not only Africa, but through the refugee camps that scattered many of our friends from Zaire, all over the world, uh, they're reading and listening to video messages and watching them on their phone in Swahili, in Europe, in even in Australia. Imagine that, a refugee camp there for many of our friends. And so uh, it's going in English and in Swahili in about 15 different nations. And I just wondered if you're interested and would like to follow that, a two-minute reminder Every week on Friday morning, I send them out. You can just listen to the message in English. Listen to it in Swahili if you want to have some fun. And uh, sign up on that with your name and your email address. That's also out on the table right beside Nancy's Manna in the morning sign-up sheet. It's all for the advertisements. Thanks for sitting through that. Okay. The Gospel of John chapter 12. We're looking at lessons around the table. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read those 11 verses one more time. My goal at the end of the conference is for your Bible to fall open to John 12 when you get home. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 says, Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then... Verse 3, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, 
anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Verse 7, But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. We trust that God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we've talked about Lazarus, and we've learned an important lesson on fellowship. And I understand most of that were, they were just simply reminders. I never mind reminders, do you? My senior missionary used to say, I have two memories, one short and the other's written down. And so sometimes we need those reminders. Simon Peter, he had a ministry of reminding. And he reminded us of what was going to happen. He reminded us of what was happening. He reminded us of what would happen even after his departure. We need that kind of reminder. I hope you don't mind that reminder. Fellowship. It's the greatest privilege we have as believers. While so many churches practice membership, we practice fellowship. One in the body of Christ. Uh, we also talked about the importance of hospitality. And uh, I know that you're a hospitable group. And we thank the Lord for it. We're going to look at another extension of that hospitality. But the lesson's going to be different. And so we notice our third person. And she is found in verse 2. And her name is Martha. I love to meet people with the name Martha because they often remind me of her. And so here we have Martha, and she just simply says, Martha served. Now you already know the lesson we're going for, the importance of service and what it means to serve. There are two ways to serve, and Martha is an example for both ways to serve. If you don't mind, I'll express it this way. We're going to see Martha serving with an attitude you understand what that means. She was sporting a tood. And then we're going to see Martha serving with gratitude. Now here in John chapter 12, she's serving with gratitude. But let's back up a little bit and watch as Martha serves with an attitude. Go to the gospel of John. I'm sorry, the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke chapter 10. And in the gospel of Luke chapter 10, we see Martha with an attitude. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 38. But especially notice verse 40 with you. Luke 10 38 says. Now it happened as they went. That he entered a certain village. And a certain woman. 
named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. We're also going to look at Mary in just a few minutes. And so we've got Martha and Mary, two sisters, teaching us two lessons. Here's the main verse for Martha. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Verse 41. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Quite a lesson, isn't it? Now, if you were analyzing Martha, you would probably put something like the three initials OCD. We all have a little bit of OCD, don't we? You mean I'm the only one? <laughs> now I might have to be described in some other way. She was, she was compulsive. She had a compulsion, a drive to get it done. And it had pushed her to the point of stress. Now I know that we all can relate to this in some way or another. It might be when you get on I-4 or I-95, I'm not sure. But wherever it is in life, there are pressure points that come into play and that stress well it pushes people to well they don't act themselves that we as we really know them or I don't act myself as I really know me let me make sure this is personal I mean I wouldn't want to be talking about you when these things happen some people have told me they said you know when I get stressed you know what I like to do I like to clean I said well come to our house Other people like to sew. Uh, Some people like to cook. And Martha must have been the kind of person who liked to cook. And uh, she started cooking. Let me just give you a little nice play on words, if you would. When we become overwhelmed in life, remember that we are overcomers. We have overcome through him. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Turn all of that stress into trust. And know that God has a purpose for everything that comes into our life. And when it comes, these interruptions are divine appointments, aren't they? And while things may not work out like we think they should, or like we had planned, remember, he has the bigger plan. And he's directing us all through it. And sometimes, life gets a little bumpy along the way. God has not lost control. He's still on the throne It's just that sometimes we have to remind ourselves that he is God and we are not. And when that happens, take all of that overwhelmed feeling and remember, overcome through him who loved us. And so in her compulsion, you see what happened. It came out of her mouth in the form of a complaint. I know none of you would ever do anything like that. Oh, it does happen, doesn't it? And sometimes that happens through the people that are the closest. Husbands and wives. Now I'm going from preaching to meddling. Uh, Fellow believers in the local assembly. Getting everything ready for a conference day. Let me just clarify. 
I have no inside information on any of the things I'm talking about. I just know real life, and I've, I've been accused of being on the inside of information by husbands and wives. I mentioned one time Nancy and I started singing hymns on the way to the meeting just to keep our attitude right, and I said it keeps an argument from breaking out. And do you know one of the ladies there, she jumped all over her husband. She said, you told him. I said, I didn't know a thing. But you know, we're not ignorant of the, of the wiles of the devil, are we? And if he's ever going to attack us, it's right before we come to meet around him. And here, at a supper with the Lord, Martha, she's overwhelmed. And she turns all of that compulsion from a drive to do right. And she does the right thing, but she does it in a wrong way. And here's her complaint. Notice, please. In verse 40. Lord, do you not care? That's a terrible thing to say to the Lord. Or to ask him, do you not care? But she's not the only one that said this. The disciples who were seasoned sailors thought they were going down for the third time. And they looked for the Lord. He's asleep at the control. And they woke him up. Can you believe being startled from being awakened? Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he woke up. He rebuked the sea, the wind, the waves, and his disciples. How is it that you have no faith? That's the answer. Whenever we're overwhelmed, faith. And when she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Sometimes we feel that way. But be careful what you tell the Lord. Remember the hymn. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the way gets weary and the long night's dreary, I know my Savior cares. He cares even for the sparrow. And he cares for you and for me. And this complaint it turned into a criticism of her sister. And you'll notice it right there at the end of verse 40. Therefore, tell her to help me. Now, Martha is in control, isn't she? And uh, Lord, this is what I want you to do. Isn't it funny how we tell the Lord what we want him to do all the time? We were reading the nice devotion by uh, Adrian Rogers. I enjoy his ministry. And uh, we get an email from him or from his ministry and he was talking about the body and the head and just yesterday or today and uh, how the head is to tell the body what to do. But when it comes to the head being Christ and the body being the body of Christ, sometimes the body tries to tell the head what to do. That's what Martha was doing right there. She's a body. She's telling the head what to do. Tell somebody else in the body to do this. Now, if my body starts telling me what to do, I'm in trouble, aren't I? I want to be in control of my body. I want to... I want to, well, I know we're going to eat. I want to buffet my body. I mean, I want to buffet my body. Spelled the same way, you know. I want to buffet my body and bring it under control that I might not be led along 
by the flesh or by bodily things, by the physical things. But I want to live in a spiritual realm. But you see Martha as part of the body. She's telling the head what should be done. Now, if you ever do this, because I think all of us do, but we may not even realize it, realize it now and say, Lord, things are going to be different from here on out. Because her criticism is against Mary. Tell her to help me. And if you read this portion, you might be thinking, yeah, it's not right that Mary gets to sit around while Martha does all the work. Look at the lumps in that gravy. Martha could have been, Mary could have been stirring the gravy. But I would mention to you that when we read about Mary in verse 39, it says that she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That little word also makes me think that Mary knew he was coming, knew she wanted to listen to his word, got up earlier than Martha, got all of her chores done, so that when he came, she could be ready to take in the word. That's just my thought. I'm trying to find somebody else that agrees with me. (laughs) But you know, that's what we should do. But many times, even when we do the right thing, the right way, we're criticized for it especially if somebody's off the deep end, like Martha is right here. And so the Lord has to correct Martha. The Lord is so gracious. He's so unlike me and unlike us. When he called her name, he called it twice. Martha, Martha. Now, if you add up all the people that he called twice, it's a good devotional study. You'll find seven people. The first person he called twice, Abraham, Abraham, right before he slew his son, Isaac. And after Abraham, he called, I want to do it like Cecil B. DeMille, Moses, Moses, (laughs) take your shoes from off your feet. The place where you stand is holy ground. And after Moses, Jacob, 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 don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I've got plans for you there. It was all fitting into his prophetic plan. Samuel, Samuel. I love that story, don't you? As Samuel runs to Eli and said, you called me. He said, no, I didn't call you. Go go back and lay down. The Lord is calling you. Samuel, Samuel. He hears, doesn't he? And then Simon, Simon. That's a word of warning here. To Simon Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Listen to his call twice. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? He answered his own question, didn't he? Who are you, Lord? (laughs) And what do you want me to do? That's an important question. You've got to know who he is before you can find out what to do. Some people have it backwards. They want to do something in order to know him. we got to know him before we can do anything for him. And then here, Martha, Martha, that's number seven. What kind of tone do you think the Lord would have used when he called her name twice? Martha, Martha! You think that's... No, I don't, I don't picture that at all. It had to be 
sympathetic, at the same time corrective. And only the Lord could blend that kind of tone together. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. That's, that's the problem. Priorities were all out of, out of order. In fact, when you use the plural form of the word priorities, that's when you get into trouble. I understand the original English word was only in the singular form, priority. Because it is impossible to have priorities in a plural sense. Once you get into a plural realm of priorities, you know, you no longer have a priority. It's over. And so here, he said, you're worried and troubled about many things. She had priorities. Verse 42, but one thing is needful. And that's a priority. Mary had that. In fact, I read in a commentary, this helps you to put commentaries in the right place. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. I read in a commentary that the Lord was saying, Martha, you've got too many dishes. You're cooking too many dishes. You only need to have one like a casserole. Put it all in one. (laughs) One thing is needful. That's not what he was saying here. But she was scattered in her mind and she needed to come back to the priority. How do you do that? Well, you listen and you hear his voice and it may say, Rex, Rex. And he gets our attention. And then he shows us an an example. Martha. She's chosen the good part. It'll never be taken away from her. But all of your activity, if it's the right thing done the wrong way, you're serving with an attitude. Now, let's go back to John chapter 12. And here we see Martha serving with gratitude. How do I know that? Well, in a two-word phrase, verse 2, it just simply says, Martha served. None of the details, none of the mechanics, none of the menu or anything that was taking place. She was serving with gratitude. She was grateful that the Lord had raised her dead brother from the dead. And he's alive again. And they were a family again. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, his best friends on earth. And there we see, just simply put, Martha served. I believe she's serving and it's service without the spotlight now. You know what I mean. All of us should be involved in the local assembly and the practical things. Uh, We have a sign-up sheet at our assembly uh, for chapel cleanup. I don't know how you do things here. Everything looks wonderful. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It's working. Unless it's a sign-up sheet and you're the only name on there. For a while, it was just me and Nancy on our sign-up sheet. And at our first meeting of the assembly, I mentioned, you know, it's a sign-up sheet for other people to be part of. And one of the families on the way out after that meeting said, well, who's been cleaning up? I said, well, I have. And she said, well, you're doing a good job. (laughs) I said, thank you very much. (laughs) You know, sometimes I was cleaning up with an attitude. But now we've got a lot of helpers and we clean up with gratitude. And that's the best way. 
And we have brothers and sisters and families with children that all lend a hand. And they do it without the spotlight. It's not announced in the Sunday morning announcements. Thank you to the Thompson family for cleaning the chapel yesterday. But sometimes you meet people that do want the recognition. And they want to know where's everybody else that should be helping in this. <clears throat> but when you serve with gratitude, you'll be like some of the sisters who come to me. They provided a, a meal for a family and they'll let me know that that's covered for next Wednesday. And then they'll tell me, do not announce this. You know why? Because they're serving with gratitude. They're glad to do it. They don't want the recognition. They don't want the spotlight. They just want to do it as unto the Lord. And listen, he sees it all. He is not unjust so as to forget your work and labor of love and the kindness you show unto his name by ministering to the saints. He's not unjust. You know, he will not forget your service. I'm so glad there's something else he won't do. He won't remember your sin. I like a God who expresses it that way. You know, he could say, I'll forget your sin and I'll remember your service, but he goes the other way. He says, I won't remember your sin and I won't forget your service. But you can be sure there's a reward. Every act of kindness will be rewarded. But if it's rewarded by him, it, his reward lasts a lot longer, doesn't it? You want it here and now? <laughs> you can have it. Or you want it there and then? I want it there and then, don't you? And Martha she had learned her lesson. I'm so happy for her. Martha served. That's it. And when she served, she did it as unto him. Now, I believe it would have been harder for Martha to serve here than it was back there in Luke. Because here, when she serves, she's serving in somebody else's house with somebody else's dishes, somebody else's equipment, somebody else's table. I mean, you can imagine. She had really nailed it. And what was her secret? I want to tell you what I believe the secret is. Go to the Gospel of Matthew with me for a moment. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. If you are serving with an attitude, let me tell you the secret so you can serve with gratitude. Here we see in Matthew chapter 25, the Lord Jesus tells us the secret of service. Now, it's a bit long, so I'm not going to read everything, but he's talking about the rewards that he's going to give out. It may be specifically for the nations at that time, but allow me just to take the principle and apply them. And in verse 40, here it is. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The key to service, to doing it right, is to do whatever we do as unto the Lord. Simple, isn't it? I had a, a chaplain's letter from the hospital a few years ago, and at the end of the letter it said, Try seeing everyone you meet today as if you're meeting God in disguise. That would change the way we treat everyone, wouldn't it? And the way we have as an attitude, as a servant. 
And so the key to service is do our service as unto him. And when we do, his reward, it's eternal. I'd like to say I've, I've learned the secret. I thought I'd learned the secret. I was at a conference with Brother Boyd Nicholson Sr., who was a gracious man, if you remember. And somebody came by and said quickly to me, now you're going to speak and you're going to finish at this time, and when you're finished, make sure you give thanks for the food and then dismiss everyone. I said, yeah, I got it. And I whispered to Brother Nicholson, I said, you know you're a servant when people treat you like one. I wish I'd have never said it. He said, that's not quite right, Brother Rex. I knew I was had. (laughs) He said, you know you're a servant by how you respond when people treat you like one. I've never forgotten it. I can't say that I've always practiced it. But it's true, isn't it? If we want to see what a servant looks like, we look at him. Wouldst thou be chief? Then lowly serve. Wouldst thou go up? Then go down. But go as low as you will. The highest has been lower still. What an example he is. The servant. The perfect servant. Behold my servant. We should serve as unto him. We should serve like him. And that's the key. But come all the way back to John chapter 12 with me again. And now we see Martha's sister Mary. And as we look at Mary, she's one of our favorite people. She's found three times sitting at the Lord's feet or at the Lord's feet. One time sitting, hearing his word, as we saw back in the Gospel of Luke. Another time falling at his feet, weeping and finding the comfort she needed. This time we see her bowing at his feet. And you know what the lesson is going to be. Worship. We find Mary in verses 3 through 8 and all of the interaction going along in Mary offering worship unto the Lord. And when we see Mary in this way, we learn something about worship. I did a little series on worship a few years ago at our assembly on the midweek meeting Bible study. And right off at the beginning of it, introducing the grand topic of worship and what a theme it is, one of the brothers raised his hand and he said, Brother Rex, how about defining worship for us? And I stammered and stuttered around. (laughs) Where's Alfred Gibbs when you need him? And uh, after I stumbled a little bit, he said, if you can't define it, we can't do it. How do you define worship? You know, it's better demonstrated than defining. And we see worship demonstrated in Mary's life. You'll notice in verse 3, we notice that Mary comes and she is single-minded. She did not come to see nor be seen. She didn't come to hear a message or to give a message. She came with one purpose and one purpose only. And that was to minister to the Lord and to worship him and bow at his feet. To worship is to be prostrate before someone. And we see even 
One example after another. Mary is the example we have here. Go to the wise men. They came and fell before him and offered their gifts. So it's falling before him, prostrate, offering something to him as gifts or offerings or sacrifices. It's all involved in worship. And Mary, she demonstrates that. Starting in verse 3, here's the extravagance of her worship. It says, then Mary took a pound a very costly oil of spikenard. First of all, the weight, a pound, <laughs> technically 12 ounces. It's kind, kind of like our world in which we live in today. Things that used to be a pound in the grocery store are now still only 12 ounces again. So uh, we can relate. Huh? A pound of spikenard really was 12 ounces by our comparison. That's That's a lot of perfume, isn't it? How much perfume does your husband buy you when he goes to the to the store for a gift? Huh? Mine usually has point zero 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 three eight or something like that. A pound? That's extravagant, isn't it? When it comes to worship, you can't be too extravagant, can you? Not only by weight, but by value. Now there are a few places, and we'll even see here about the value later, but I love the way the Spirit of God expresses the value of this costly oil of spikenard. Do you notice it doesn't tell us the amount? Uh, Judas has his price, I know, and we figured out what that is, and we'll talk about it later, but here it just says a very costly oil of spikenard. That's a lot, isn't it? Because now we're not looking at the value as if you were to purchase it, but the intrinsic value of what it meant to God. And that cannot be estimated by any dollars and cents, but only by a heart that receives worship in its extravagance. Not only how much was it worth, but who was it for? From the practice of that day, usually... This kind of spikenard was kept in an alabaster flask for a family member in their passing. Oh yeah, Lazarus had already died. She didn't use it on Lazarus. She kept it for him. And that's something else about worship. Our worship is not directed toward any other person, but for him. And when she offered it, Mark tells us she broke the flask and emptied it all out. And the extravagance is she offered it all, every bit, held nothing back. What extravagance. Don't go to extremes. (laughs) I met a man one time. He was criticizing me for being too zealous. He said, I mean, I love the Lord too, but I don't let it affect my life. (laughs) I said, I don't think I want what you've got. Don't be afraid to go too far for him. And she offered it out. Even when David worshipped, what a demonstration it is. I don't want to get off from Mary, but you understand. He said, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Make it count. Not only the extravagance, but the expression. In verse 3, would you look at it again? She 
offered it, and it tells us she anointed the feet of Jesus. That's bowing down, isn't it? Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's the same event. She poured it on his head. In the Gospel of John, she poured it on his feet. Now, you know, uh, Matthew and also Mark uses his head. He's the servant. He's the king. We can reach him as the head. But here in John, he's the son of God, exalted in the highest, and she offers it low at his feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. These things are very expressive, aren't they? And that's the expression of our worship. Uh, Not only the extravagance, but the expression. She wanted no glory for herself, but she took her own glory and wiped his feet with her hair. There was nothing to hold back. And she, she honored the Lord in a beautiful way. What's the effectiveness of her worship? Well, verse 3 tells us what that effect is. The last part of verse 3, the last sentence says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It would have been on the furnishings. It would have been on the draperies, if there were drapes there. It would have been over all the people and herself as well as the Lord. You know, that's the nice thing. We're to be a fragrance of Christ in every place, the knowledge of him. When we meet together to worship him, and that's not only when we remember him, but I hope our hearts are tuned in worship to thank him for what we have from his word, even now. And we go our way to other places. Will they see the beauty of the Lord Jesus in us? Everybody there. They had the fragrance all over themselves. And everybody here and everything should be affected greatly because of the effectiveness of worship. That's the kind of worship and the kind of worshipers we want to be, isn't it? And so you could go to the Old Testament. You could say, what did they offer? Well, they offered things like a bullock or a lamb or a sheep or a turtle dove or a goat or even grain, depending on what the offering and sacrifice was. You and I, we have different kinds of offerings today, don't we? What are the offerings we bring? You know, sometimes we say, well, the supreme sacrifice of all sacrifices and the fulfillment of all has been offered, so there's nothing else for us to do. Wait just a minute. (laughs) We're to offer praise, the fruit of the lips, giving thanks to his name, Hebrews chapter 13. In fact, if you'll take a moment, just slip right over there, you'll see more than just our praise, but come right to Hebrews chapter 13, where we go outside the camp unto him, and when we do, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, therefore, and I love that word, what is it, therefore, Therefore, by him, this is Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that confess or give thanks to his name. When someone in our feeblest tone stands to say, thank you, Lord, for saving me, for loving me, for keeping me. These are expressions of praise. It's worship, isn't it? Not only that, but in verse 16, it says, but do not forget to do good. That's good works. Now, we're not saved by doing good, but we're saved unto good works. 
God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. And when we do, it gives glory to God. Not only that, it says, and to share, to distribute. It's possessions. It's it's almost like putting our money where our mouth is, isn't it? If we're going to praise him, show it. And we give our possessions and it brings glory to God. And verse 16, this is Hebrews 13, 16 says, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Don't you love it? He's not going to say, you know, actually, I was hoping for a different color. No, if it's offered in the right way from the right heart, like Mary did. She was criticized for it. But the Lord, he's pleased with it. There are other sacrifices in the New Testament. Paul said, the Gentiles who have believed, they have become like an offering poured out. All for the glory of God. And here's our favorite. Romans chapter 12. Would you turn there please? Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And Nancy told me to quit telling stories about her. But this is her lifetime verse. Romans 12, 1 and 2. She said that's because it'll take a lifetime to put it into practice. It's true for me. True for all of us. But this is the most important offering you can offer him. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beg you, I beseech you by the mercies, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, not a dead one, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We come to him. We come to him as a soul set free. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercies I sing, nor fear with God's righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. Those are the sacrifices with which he's pleased. Are we worshiping him? Don't wait till tomorrow. Worship him now. We were in Zaire and I believe I saw Romans 12, 1, in living action. There was a man in the village, he was deaf, and for that purpose he was dumb, or mute. And his speech was so garbled, you couldn't understand what he said. He couldn't interact with anyone, so he he wove baskets, and he would weave baskets and trade baskets for the oil and the soap and the salt that he needed. And we all knew him as the basket man. He got saved. And he came to the Lord's Supper that first Sunday after being saved. Now, at our Lord's Supper, at the offering time, people bring offerings to the front. Some of us missionaries didn't like that very much. Until we read in the book of Acts, they brought their offerings and laid them at the apostles' feet. So, well, maybe we need to adjust ours. Now, people bring, I mean, Nancy and I gave millions over there. (laughs) But it was six million to one dollar. So it wasn't worth very much. So people, rather than giving money that meant nothing, they would bring sometimes a stalk of bananas or a bowl of beans they had harvested. Sometimes they would bring a chicken or a goat. If they brought a chicken, they would tie their legs up and lay them on their side. So you watch this chicken with his eyes open. They brought a goat. They would tie a goat rope around the leg of the Lord's Supper table. And hope that they stay quiet during the rest of the meeting. 
the basket man brought a basket. And I said, well, isn't that nice? Some people bring chickens, some people bring millions, some people bring goats, and he brings a basket. And then he surprised us. He took the basket and he set it down. It was a large basket. He put one leg into it and the other leg into it. And in a garbled tone, he said, Lord, I have nothing to give you. I'll give you myself. I said, I think I've just seen Romans 12, 1. Mary, what an example she is. She teaches a lesson we'll never forget. Worship. And Martha, she tells us what we need to do. Serve. And these lessons are learned all around the supper table. I hope we're learning them well today. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for these examples. And as we enjoy our fellowship together, we pray that you would make these lessons part of our hearts, that our lives might be changed to be more and more like him. And so we commend ourselves to you for your blessing in every way. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Don't forget to sign up on some of these sign-up sheets at the back. Well, one thing you can say about Rex is he is keeping good time. We are right on schedule. So we will try to keep that going through our lunch but, you know, before lunch, we have uh, an application of uh, somewhat what Rex was talking about because conferences uh, do cost uh, money. Not millions, but they do cost. And so we do take up an offering. And so we'll be passing the basket there someplace, somewhere. There he goes. Yes, so, uh, and as your uh, bulletin will tell you, if you have a check, you can make it payable to our Assembly Lake Howell Bible Chapel. And uh, out of this, of course, the conference uh, fund that is passed from assembly to assembly uh, is uh, generated, so uh, we appreciate your uh, giving what you, uh, what the Lord directs you to give. As uh, the offering is being passed, let me give you some instructions because we do need to do things uh, orderly in order to do them timely. So uh, what we have set up over in the other building is a wonderful lunch prepared for you. I think you'll find that to be the case. Uh, we don't want to cast the spotlight too much on on folks, as we just heard, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Don Tanchin is uh, an excellent uh, smoker of meats and preparer thereof, and he has prepared much... Uh, Pork is the main uh, dish. If you uh, can't stand pork, then there is a chicken alternative. Uh, 
and he has been assisted by his wife uh, Angel in preparing uh, coleslaw and macaroni and cheese. And uh, of course, we couldn't put a, a lunch on here at Lake Howe without Steve and Don Harper. <clears throat> Any of you who have been up at camp know <laughs> how they work and how they are uh, an example of service to us all. <clears throat> and, uh, of course, we don't need... One verse of number 292, when we sing the verse of the song, any of the children that are 12 and under will be able to go out with uh, Brother George. You got somebody to pick them up out here? It's going to, all right, way in the back there. It's going to be walk, taking those children out, 12 and under, out this door for some children's meetings. We'll, as we sing one verse of 292, I'll give you a chance to stand and stretch. 292, verse, first verse only. should be familiar to most of us, Rex and Nancy Trogdon. Uh, they've been down here before. Rex and his wife Nancy were commended to serve the Lord over in Zaire, Africa, 1983. Now, someone besides a Trogdon or someone tied to new tribes, I also known as Ethnos, tell me, what's the name of the country that's Zaire? Because you won't find it on your map today. I've geographically stumped them, David. I've geographically stumped them. David, what country is Zaire today? Oh, no! I'm reporting that guy to the, the board at, at, at the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? So, so many things have changed. That was 1983, 10 years there serving the Lord. They've been back um, serving in North Carolina. Is it Believer's Bible Chapel Fellowship? And uh, outside of North uh, Charlotte, North, North Carolina. And so they brought the trailer down. We pulled in. Lanny said, he's here. There's the trailer. He's back in the back there. So it's good to have him. We'll turn this over to him. Now, you're going to govern yourself. He's going to close the first session with prayer. you got about 15 minutes break time. And then David and Dan are going to ride herd on you to get you to sit back down. All right? Brother Rex, please. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Brother Billy. It's great to see you and to be with you and to see some of our friends we've known for a long time. And uh, I like photographs, don't you? I found out the older the picture, the younger I look. <laughs> and so we're going to try to... to uh, be serious now, but uh, it's nice to meet some new friends, too. Some of you, we've heard your names before, and now we're getting to know each other. I love conference times, and I can tell you like them, too. But we're going to pray that we confer with God in our hearts and that our time together is full of rich fellowship together, but also a work that God is doing in each one of us, and we're going to learn these lessons believe it or not, around the supper table. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12. I want to make sure that this bottle of water clicks when I open it. Yeah. Thank you for the music and for the refreshments and for hosting the Central Florida Bible Conference this year and for the great privilege you've given to Nancy and me to join you for it. And uh, we've been looking forward to this time for uh, quite a couple of years, I guess, now. And uh, I'm so glad that it's come about. The Lord is good. We've all been through a lot since COVID. I guess that's kind of the thing everyone says these days. But we have survived it, and we're going on for the Lord. I hope the next great event in this world is going to be the catching away of the bride. We trust that be the Lord's will. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and I'm reading in the New King James translation. Please follow right along as I read. It says, Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Verse 12 just simply says, the next day, a great multitude. And we'll pause right there and trust that God adds his best blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray once more together. <clears throat> Our Father, we bow before your presence and we thank and praise you for your wonderful word. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to will and to work your good pleasure 
to change us to be more conformed to the image of your beloved Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you take a title for our overall conference day, it is Seven Lessons We Learn at the Table. We're going to learn these lessons from six individuals, we've just read about them, and then one large group of different peoples for our last lesson at the table. So we're looking for seven lessons at the table, and we're going to learn these lessons from Lazarus, from Simon of Bethany, from Martha, from Mary, from Judas, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and from generally the people that were involved in this great event of a supper time. We learn a lot of good lessons at supper time, don't we? Now, I'm not talking about lessons like wash your hands before you come to the table, or like don't talk with food in your mouth, or even take all you want, eat all you take. That was our favorite lesson. (laughs) But we're going to learn spiritual lessons from each of these individuals With the Lord's help, and as we look at the very first one, we're going to look at Lazarus. Now, as we start in these first two verses, taking a lesson from Lazarus, there are a couple of things by introduction that will help us to appreciate the lesson that we can gain. In fact, you'll notice in the very first verse that we read, John chapter 12, verse 1, that we have a time indicator. Then, six days before the Passover. It's interesting that we're about the halfway point of the Gospel of John. And here we read six days before the Passover. And of course, the Passover that we're referring to is when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for us and offered himself unto God as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John's Gospel also opened up. So we're at the halfway point, and we realize we've covered approximately three years of ministry in the first half of the Gospel of John. And now everything changes. Instead of covering years in these first 12 chapters or 11 chapters, now we slow the pace down, don't we? The last half of the Gospel, now this is true not only with John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. The first half basically covers either from his birth all the way to his three years of ministry. And then halfway through, everything slows down. We start counting time by days. Later, it's going to be by hours and then by moments. Don't miss the time indicators along the way. And we thank God for the gospel of John, but for all the gospels that give us the same presentation of the wonderful man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And through his life, we behold him and we are amazed in his presence freshly once again today. I do appreciate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, the little town where we live, Waxhaw, North Carolina, is a town that that is the location for the Wycliffe Bible Translators station called JARS, Jungle Aviation and Radio Service. And uh, many of the children and grandchildren of missionaries that have retired there work at the local supermarket. I went in to get something for Nancy the other day, and I always noticed name tags, not just at conferences, but at grocery stores too. And I noticed the young man checking me out was Matthew. I said, oh, you're Matthew. 
I said, that's a great Bible name. He said, yeah, my mom and dad were missionaries. I, I, they named me Matthew. I said, well, that's great. I got through Matthew's line, and after I checked out, I thought of something I forgot. And when you send your husband to the store, it's dangerous. I came back through, and Matthew's line was, was packed. And so I went to the next man over, young man, and his name was Mark. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I said, so he's Matthew, and you're Mark. He said, yeah, we're both believers. And uh, he said, over behind him is Luke. <laughs> I looked behind Matthew, and there was Luke, and then I looked the other way, and there was a young lady, and she said, I am not John. (laughs) So you understand, here we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so here we have John, and John says, I'm slowing everything down now. We're just going to take our time, and we're going to work through the last six days of our Savior's life. Not only a time indicator, but a place indicator It tells us in verse 1, then six days before the Passover, that's our time indicator, a place indicator, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, Bethany is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a very important mountain, not only in relation to our Lord's Day, because from the Mount of Olives, a number of things happened there. Gethsemane is on the eastern slope where the Lord Jesus wept and cried out with loud, vehement cries, but submitted perfectly as he always had to the Father's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. You notice also the Mount of Olives. That's where Bethany was. There, you can go to the little village of Bethany even today. Still a very insignificant village in Israel and It was only the event that happened there that put it on the map and is recorded in the Holy Scriptures, Bethany, there on the Mount of Olives. On that Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus descended for his great triumphal entry, and on that Mount of Olives, he ascended from there to go back into glory. And on the Mount of Olives, I tell you what, you notice that I love the Mount of Olives, don't you? I mean... We call it all of it because that's how much I love all of it. I mean, seriously, I love it. It's a little bit of a slow group here today. huh? I love it. And I hope you love it, too, because on the Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus, according to the angel who said this same Jesus who was taken up from you into glory will so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And Zechariah, the prophet, says his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Bethany is on the Mount of Olives. And it brings everything to life, doesn't it? That these are real places that happened at a real time and everything according to the split second of God's timing. Bethany, that was the home of Lazarus, Martha, And Mary. And some say it was the favorite place for the Lord Jesus to visit. That he never stayed in Jerusalem. But he always went over to the Mount of Olives. To his good friends. Lazarus. And Lazarus is the one that we're going to learn the lesson from. And as we look at Lazarus and the specific facts about him. The things that made him so important to follow. We find that. John 12, 1 and 2, 
run a wonderful parallel to Ephesians chapter 2. So I'm going to ask if you'd like to, to follow parallel portions of scripture. And if you'd like to, you could turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and just put your finger there. And you'll be ready when we jump back and forth. Because here are some things about Lazarus. Verse 1 tells us where Lazarus was. And the first thing we read about him is who had been dead. Lazarus had died. Why did he die? Well, we don't know what caused his death. We just know that him whom thou lovest is sick. And that sickness, as the Lord Jesus said, is not unto death, but he died. The Lord knew what he would do. We simply read that it was Lazarus who had been dead. We can say ultimately the reason Lazarus had been dead is taking us all the way back to Adam, who was told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as the warning was stated by God himself, for in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And he ate. And he died. And through that act of rebellion, sin entered the world. And death by sin. And death spread to the whole human race. Because all have sinned. And that's the reason Lazarus died. And that's the reason, as you look over in Ephesians chapter 2, we can read this parallel verse in verse 1. And it goes Perfectly along with Lazarus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says. And you he made alive. Read the next three words. Who were dead. In trespasses and sins. Now don't close Ephesians because we're going to be back. But you'll see very clearly. That we can all relate to Lazarus. There's not an exception to the rule. When the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. I used to quote that verse before I knew the Lord. I knew the verse. All have sinned. I didn't realize three fingers were pointing back at me. And when I realized that included me, I knew I needed a savior. For the wages of sin is death. I'm telling you this right now because... Well, I know a few people here. I don't know everyone. Here's the question. Every one of us is going to relate to Lazarus in one of two ways. Either in this first instance of his mention and Lazarus who had been dead. And as we've established from the scripture, because of sin and death that spread to the whole human race. That's the reason Lazarus died, because he was a sinner like me. And you, I got to ask you, you realize, of course, we relate to Lazarus in sin and in death. But I'm hoping that's not the only way you relate to him because we all relate to him in this way without any exception to the rule. If you think you're the exception, I've got to tell you, you're not. But God has a wonderful plan for you. 
It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And if you will put your trust in him, I know of no better day to do that than right this very day. No better time than right this very moment. You don't have to wait till we finish the message. You can acknowledge, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. And I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal savior. That's short and sweet, but that's the basics of it. I believe Lazarus had done that. And so because of that, as you go back to John chapter 12, we see the second instance about Lazarus. Look there in verse 1 again. Where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now we see Lazarus and he's raised. Just like everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now, if you're ever going to say an amen, that would be a good one. It's true, isn't it? Look, if you will, back in Ephesians chapter 2 again. And there in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll notice in verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus to Martha there in John chapter 11. When Lazarus had died... And the Lord said, he'll live again. And Martha said, oh, I know he will on the last day. And the Lord brought her up to date. (laughs) I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her a question. I've got to ask you the question too. Do you believe this? And if you do, you say, I relate to Lazarus in more than just one way, but also I'm alive by the resurrection. So which way do you believe in Lazarus, dead or alive? I'm going for the life side. How about you? And only through the Lord Jesus Christ can we enjoy that wonderful resurrection life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, look, if you will, in chapter 12 of John's gospel once again. And come all the way down to verse 2. We're going to skip over a couple of places here. But in verse 2, it says, But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. He was seated. And if you know the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, you're already over there to chapter 2, verse 6, aren't you? He not only was dead like we're dead, he was raised like we've been raised. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. And we'll pause right there. We are seated. Seated. Where? In the best seat in the house. (laughs) In heavenly places. You can't get any higher seats than that. Now, Lazarus was seated as a guest of honor. You know, the Lord receives us. It's hard to imagine. I know we can, we just can't take it in. But that he seats us as his guest of honor at his table. Can you think of any greater honor that he's given to us? He has shown us favor beyond measure. By his marvelous grace. No wonder 
The Apostle Paul added that at the end of verse 5. By grace, God's unmerited favor toward us. For by grace you have been saved. So we see him dead, alive, raised, of course, seated. But there's something else. And that's in verse 2. The last two words. With him. With him. Don't miss that. It's not just that we're seated in the heavenlies. We're seated together in the heavenlies. With Christ. With him. That's where Lazarus was seated. Right at the table. Right with the Lord Jesus. And we can relate to Lazarus that way. Because we've been seated together with Christ. We're enjoying fellowship. And that's really what the table represents, isn't it? That's going to be our first lesson If you've had your pen poised waiting, what lesson is this going to be? Well, it's the lesson of fellowship. Because Lazarus was raised from the dead, and now he's enjoying fellowship. The Lord Jesus stood outside his tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Someone said if he hadn't called his personal name, all the dead would have been raised. For John 5 tells us that all the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man when he calls out. But here he said, Lazarus, come forth. And when he came forth, he came forth to enjoy fellowship. What does it mean to be in fellowship? Just think for a moment. Lazarus, he was in a tomb. Now, when Nancy and I have been over to Israel, we've been seven times. Hope to go again in the will of the Lord. Hope you'll go with me in the will of the Lord. But <clears throat> when we go over to Bethany, you'll see a tomb, and it'll have a sign, the tomb of Lazarus. <laughs> I don't know if you can qualify it geographically and archaeologically, but that's what they say. There's the sign. Somebody put a sign, wrote on there, the tomb of Lazarus. But the one thing is true about any tomb. It's dark inside. And Think of Lazarus there in that tomb, dark and damp, death, and gloom. And he stepped forth out of the darkness and what? Into the light. And if you'll take a moment, this time not to the book of Ephesians, although he speaks about walking in the light, and that's what Lazarus did, but come over to 1 John with me, please. And in 1 John chapter 1, now John, of course, this is, this is profound, you may want to make a note, is written by John. When he was older in age, and he did much at Ephesus, we're taking the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote, and we're taking First John that John wrote, but the connection is Ephesus. And here we have in First John chapter 1, you'll notice in verses 5 and 6, First uh, John chapter 1, 5 and 6, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no death around the Lord Jesus. Out of the tomb. The tomb was not able to hold him and it won't be able to hold us. He has robbed death of all of its gloom and brought us out of darkness into light, brought us out of death into life. We have passed from death into life. And that's what Lazarus did. And right after he says this, that in him is no darkness at all, look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... 
we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Don't you see this has to be the lesson. It's what John wrote about in his gospel. It's what he expounded about in his first epistle. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's wonderful, isn't it? That's what fellowship is. Fellowship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's walking in fellowship. That's really the only thing that we see Lazarus do. Did you know that Lazarus has no recorded words? Now, I'm sure he spoke something. I'm sure he said plenty, but you have no recorded words from Lazarus. What do we see? It's not his talk. It's his walk. And that's how we identify fellowship. We don't want to forsake the fellowship, the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But so much the more as we see the day approaching. And that fellowship is expressed, demonstrated, Not by our talk, but by our walk. The last thing we read about Lazarus is, loose him and let him go. And he began to walk. And he's been walking ever since. I'm sure he did some talking too. But you and I, we've been called to fellowship. Why? Well, because we were dead. And then we were raised. Then we were seated. And now we're in fellowship with him. And with all of his people. I can tell you enjoy fellowship. I mean you enjoyed it all the way. I went out on the porch before you even checked in for the conference. And you were already enjoying fellowship together. And it spills over. I can enjoy it too. And just think of it. Some of us have never met before. And yet we can call each other brother or sister. And greet each other in the Lord's name. That's what true Christian fellowship really is about. Now the word fellowship. It appears about 19 or 20 times in our New Testament. The word, of course, koinonia. It's interesting that a few years ago in Texas, a young man won from Texas, won the National Spelling Bee with a word for fellowship. But they used the Greek words transliterated into English, koinonia. And it was coming right down between two people to see who would win the spelling bee on a national level. And they said, spell the word koinonia. And the young lady, she looked dismayed. The young man, his eyes brightened. And I said, I bet he's from a Christian home. I found out later he was. Talking with people that knew him over in Texas. And do you know, uh, he spelled it. Do you know how to spell koinonia? I know, that's what you're thinking about right now. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. It appears about 19 or 20 times in our New Testament, as I mentioned. Also appears on a little boat down in Manowar Key in the Bahamas, Koinonia. They're Greek travelers on a boat, and they put Koinonia. Now, fellowship, when I've done some translation into Swahili over in Africa on the job, some visitors come, they speak English. And they preach in English, so I got to translate into Swahili. We had one visitor who said, today I'm going to speak on fellowship. And I said, leo ninatakakuhu birijuya ushirikiana. I told him to keep his sentences short, 
but he chopped them up pretty bad. He said, some people say that fellowship is. And so I said, I was waiting to hear what the point was. He said, three fellows in a ship. I translated it, three men in a boat. Doesn't translate that way, does it? But you and I know what it means, don't we? Fellowship is not three fellows in a ship. But in the sense of what that means, if you're in the boat together, we're all in the same boat. (laughs) That's a good way to describe fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Well, it means sharing. We're like partnership. It means caring for one another. It even means bearing sometimes with one another and bearing one another's burdens. If you really want to know what fellowship requires, go through a study of the one another's in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, teach one another, pray for one another. You'll find quite a list. We won't exhaust it. We'll just exhaust you. But you can find what fellowship is by looking at all the one another's because God has put us into this fellowship. And what a joy divine we have leaning on the Lord and leaning on him together. So Lazarus gives us a good lesson in fellowship. A living, breathing, walking, talking fellowship. Have you learned the lesson of fellowship? You can learn it from Lazarus. Secondly, we have another lesson to look at, and in these next 13 minutes, we see a man who is listed here, but you don't see his name. John chapter 12, verse 2, it just says, there they made him a supper, but it doesn't tell us there where is there. We know from the other gospels, from the gospel of Mark, that it was at the home or house of Simon. And he's not just any ordinary Simon. In fact, I counted up the Simons in the New Testament. I came up with seven Simons. Simon says, just think for a moment. Seven Simons, what a perfect name. There's Simon Peter, of course, that's the first one that comes to mind. Simon, the other disciple who was Simon the Zealot. We all need a little bit more zeal. Then you had Simon the Pharisee who invited the Lord over for a meal. You know what they were having? Roast preacher. (laughs) Roast Messiah. I thought of the proverb that says, put a knife to your throat if you be a man given to appetite when you're invited to eat with a ruler. And he had to realize, be careful of his dainties. Simon the Pharisee. Then there's Simon of Cyrene. I love him because he's African. We talked about him a lot while we ministered in Africa. Simon of Cyrene, he bore the Lord's cross, and we get to bear our own. Simon, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, together with James and Judas and the Lord's sister. Uh, Simon Iscariot, the betrayer. When I say uh, Simon Iscariot, that's Simon, the father of Judas Iscariot. He's Simon's son. Who he is, I'm trying to find out. I don't really care, but I'm still trying to find out. But he's another Simon that's mentioned. And then here we have Simon, 
And what distinguishes him from the other Simons in the Bible? He's called Simon the leper. I'd like to think about that for a little while. Because in verse 2, it just says, there. And Mark tells us, there at Simon's house, in Bethany. Do you know the book of Leviticus tells us about leprosy? And he said, for the leper, he had to dwell alone outside the camp. And it even tells us not only about his accommodations, but it tells us about his garments. For the leper, he had to burn his garments in the fire. And for the leper, his house would be emptied, shut up for a period of time. If the leprosy remained, it had to be scraped and finally broken down and carried away to another place. And if he had visitors... Leviticus 13 tells us in verse 46, all of his visitors would be unclean until evening. And it just simply says here, there. So what does that help us to know? Well, I'll tell you what it helps us to know. It means that if Simon, who is called Simon the leper, was still a leper, they wouldn't be there, would they? Something happened. Think about this for a moment. Not only Simon the leper at his house there, but look at the next word in verse 2. They. Although he's still called Simon the leper, obviously he had been healed by none other than the Lord Jesus because you never read about any healings of any of the lepers except by a miraculous work throughout the entire scriptures and especially in the Lord's day. Lepers, you know, they teach us a lot. Like the one leper who was in outside places, he saw the Lord come by and he made his move and he fell down on his knees before the Lord and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me whole. And the Lord said, I'm willing. And he reached out and touched him and made him whole. That leper taught us about the will of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He wills that all people are saved. We learn about the will of God from that first leper being healed. If you are willing, I am willing, be cleansed. We learn from another group of lepers, but it's just one out of ten. And he was a Samaritan. Who when the Lord told the ten lepers to go and show themselves to the priest. As they were going, they were cleansed. And one turned back and with a loud, literally a megaphone voice. He glorified God. And he taught us something about worship. As he fell on his knees before the Lord and worshipped him. And gave him glory. Yeah, we learned a lot of lessons about the Lord. From lepers, don't we? The will of God, the worship of God. I'll tell you, Simon the leper. We learned something about Simon the leper. And the work of God. And so here's the first thing we see when it says there, we're talking about Simon's house. When it says they, we're talking about Simon's health. Because if Simon had not been healed, they would not have been there. 
And it tells us in verse 2, they made him a supper. This tells us about Simon's heart. You know, when you love someone, what do you want to do? You want to have them in close to you. And usually when the saints get together, (laughs) we like to eat. Great the joy when Christians eat. I mean, meet. Christian fellowship, how sweet. We like to eat together. Some of the missionaries said, you know, I think sometimes we overdo the food and refreshments at conferences there in the Congo. I said, well, you might as well get used to it. As soon as we get to heaven, we start with the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) I mean, that's really this fellowship we're talking about has to do with sitting at the supper table together, doesn't it? And what do you do at the supper table? Well, you eat as well as fellowship. It just goes hand in hand or hand over fist. (laughs) When they made him a supper, Simon's heart was showing, wasn't it? As big as it can get. And he opened his heart to the Lord. And he opened his home to the Lord and all those who came with him. Now, I'm counting up how many must have been around that table. (laughs) I mean, if you got the Lord, 12 disciples, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and Simon. Some of you are actually calculating this. I come up with 17 people around the table. Reminds me of the little story I heard of the lady who invited some folks home for dinner. And it kept growing. The list kept growing. Sunday morning, she was busy, and her son was observing all this. And when they finally got everybody to the table and everything ready, she said, Johnny, why don't you say grace? And he said, oh, Mommy, I won't know what to say. And she said, just just say what you hear Mommy saying. So he bowed his head, and he said, Lord, why did I invite so many people for dinner? (laughs) You feel that way sometimes, don't you? The lesson is going to be, Hospitality. Now, you know what hospitality, what the root word is, of course, don't you? Hospital. What do they, I don't mean in this day and time, but what do they normally share and show at the hospital? Care. When you really care, you have someone in, don't you? And you enjoy a meal together. And you want it to be the best you can. But the practice of hospitality I don't know if you're going to be surprised by this, but let me just mention a couple of things. We've got scripture for it. It's required of elders. And believe me, I think that's where the wife of an elder comes into play. I hope, I hope, I hope. They're hospitable. They have people in. It's commanded, while it's required of elders and their wives, it's commanded of all believers First Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another. Do you know the next two words? Without grumbling. <laughs> there are those who are gifted in hospitality. Yet, hospitality, here's where I hope you're not shocked. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not in the spiritual gift list. You can go check them all out there in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, you've got the list. Now, I'm not sure if that's an exhaustive list, but 
in the list that we have in those four portions of scripture, hospitality is not a spiritual gift. But there are those who are gifted in hospitality. It's more of an art almost, isn't it? And a forgotten one as well. Ultimately, hospitality is a command. It's also a practice. You know, practice makes perfect. I said that the other day in a a dear brother. He said, that's not quite right, Brother Rex. Practice does not make perfect. If you practice it wrong, it's always wrong. (laughs) He said, perfect practice makes perfect. I believe our musicians have gotten the perfect practice down. But you know, hospitality, if you want to be the perfect host and the perfect hostess, you've got to practice at it. And it might start with happy meals for everyone brought home. (laughs) But it might end up with a nice dinner around your table. Make it enjoyable. Make it relaxed. It's the way you show you care. If you practice hospitality, we thank God for you. Do you know... In the Old Testament, there's a benefit to hospitality. And in the New Testament, and these two I'll just mention to you as we talk about hospitality and the lesson learned, it's worth your while. Nancy and I were recently with uh, David and Ruthie Logan. He's with the Lord now. But our last time together while he was living, they said, we really want to have you over. And it's just too much on Ruthie. And with Parkinson's, he wasn't able to do it. Maybe you enjoyed Dr. Logan's meditations in the choice gleanings over the years. What a godly man and faithful. You know what they did? They ordered out from the local Chinese Oriental restaurant. And everybody got what they wanted. And the fellowship was great. We ate out of styrofoam with plastic forks. It was one of the most memorable times of hospitality Nance and I have enjoyed. So it's not what you put on the table. Although you want to practice at it, be a perfect hostess if you want to. Abraham and Sarah is the Old Testament example. Do you know when they entertained the Lord and the angels who came through? They were, unbeknownst to them, entertaining angels unawares. Now, it wasn't the angels who were unaware. It was Abraham and Sarah. And you think, uh, Sarah... (laughs) Go uh, make some bread and to a servant, go kill a calf. How long does it take to get a calf on hoof onto the table? I'm thinking five hours at least. What do you do while you're waiting for dinner? You fellowship together. It's true hospitality. It starts at the moment you arrive or even before. In the New Testament, there was a couple who practiced hospitality. Uh, The couple... In Luke chapter 24, well, they had a special blessing, didn't they? They actually, just like Abraham and Sarah, entertained the Lord. And when he sat at the table with them, and he took the bread and broke it, and gave thanks, they recognized the Lord. They opened their home. And he opened their eyes and they saw him and he vanished from their sight. They opened their hearts and he opened to them the scriptures. And after that dinner, they had a good case of spiritual heartburn. (laughs) All because of hospitality. Romans 12 tells us, be given. 
to hospitality. I understand that word is very strong. It literally, we would say, be driven to hospitality. Make it your goal. Nancy and I had, have had great hospitality all over the world. But one place that's memorable is down in Spanish Wells with dear uh, sister Ruth Newbel. After the dinner, see Nancy's been on Weight Watchers all her life. She weighs her food before she eats it, and I weigh my food after I eat it. Thank you very much. But Sister Ruth Newbold, she had fixed a whole nice meal and two desserts. And she said, I have two desserts. And Nancy said, I won't have any. And Ruth Newbold said, I made two desserts, and you're going to eat it. And I said, I've read about you before, Romans 12, 3. Be driven to hospitality. Don't take no for an answer. These are two important lessons, aren't they? Do you know they're so enjoyable? Fellowship on one hand, hospitality on the other. We trust that God will help us to learn our lessons well. These lessons are around his table. Two down, five more to go. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the lessons we learned from you, Lord, and from your word. Bless them to our hearts, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.